Hello, Kate. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered. A podcast about climate politics for the 99%. So we are back from a pretty long hiatus. It's been a few months since we've taped an episode. This is a really special series that we're kicking off with this this episode. Um, It's a series of episodes around panels from an amazing conference that, Kate, you and I hosted along with Billy Fleming, who's joining us here today. Billy, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Hi, folks. I'm Billy Fleming. I'm the Wilkes Family Director for the Ian McCarg Center here at the University of Pennsylvania. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have a tiny, perfect dog named Pepper and a giant, chunky boy cat named Pickles. And it's been a while since we've talked, so I will remind you that my full name is Daniel Aldana Cohen. I'm also at Penn. I'm a, you know, teaching the sociology department, and I direct something now, fancy new thing, the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative, or SC2. And I think, Kate, you've got an affiliation to share with us as well. And a name. My, <laughs> my full name is uh, Kate Aronoff. I am a fellow at the Tight Media Center and a contributing writer to The Intercept, right for other places. That's me. That's you. And here's, and let's just say it. I mean, Kate, you and I, along with Tia Rio Francos and Melissa Battistoni, have written a book called The Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. And Naomi Klein, who we'll hear from in just a few minutes, wrote a forward for us. Super nice for her to do. So nice. She's the best. Naomi is the best. Um... So we do need a Green New Deal, but that Green New Deal is not just going to tumble down from the heavens. Uh, it's a thing we're going to have to do together. We're going to have to build it. And when we build it, yeah, literally, it's going to hit the ground. Um, and that is a intense, big, giant, physical project, number of projects that that involves. Um, Billy, you work in a design school, and you know, I think, I don't remember who had this idea when we came up with it, but I think it might have been you. Um, And maybe talk about, yeah, you know, from the point of view of a design school, uh, why it's so important to get into this question of, you know, this conference is called Designing a Green New Deal. Why did we need to bring all these people together to bring together the design professions with all these like fantastic Green New Dealers? Yeah. I mean, the design professions are an instrument. So when big, abstract, national scale ideas, whether they're, you know, democratic socialist ideas or social democratic ideas or like horrendous capitalist ideas, get literally translated by designers into built like stuff out in the environment, our housing, our infrastructure, our parks, everything. And for us, you know, when we talked about this, I think, you know, I don't remember who came up with it either because we hashed some of this in a bar and that was a long night. Um, But it was really clear, right, that like this moment or this movement was necessarily being led by, um, you know, economists and labor policy experts and organizers uh, and folks who have been and should be and should continue to be at the sort of core of the Green New Deal movement. But that was also really important as this as this thing sort of gained momentum to think about how the various things that are being proposed will transform the built environment, the landscape, everything we that shapes how and where we live in this country through a Green New Deal. And so for us, I think we wanted to put all of these folks like, you know, Rihanna Gunn-Wright, like Naomi Klein, who we're going to hear from in this panel and like many, many others throughout the day in conversation with a bunch of really smart planners and designers who could help us think through what it might mean to live in a world built by the Green New Deal. And I'll also say selfishly, you know, sitting in a school of design and having been around a bunch of them over the years, um, they're, they aren't places with bad politics, they're places with no politics. Um, and it was really important because we have so many students and increasingly a lot of faculty who I think are really desperate for uh, a way to sort of make sense of and find their way into this movement 
to put them in to put them in a room with a bunch of really smart lefties and let them, you know, figure out what the radical spatial politics of a Green New Deal might mean for the way they think about, you know, the way they practice and, and do their jobs. Yeah, I mean, it's that's so right. And the I think the point about students is exactly right on. I mean, this is a movement led by young people. Um we had very young people on every panel. Um and let's just maybe let me just say a word about these panels. So you've gotten this far. In this episode of the podcast, you'll hear our first episode from our keynote panelists. Um, that's Jane McAlevey, uh, union organizer, author, very special, longtime activist, organizer, and everything else. Um, in conversation with Naomi Klein, the author who needs no introduction, her latest book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, but also author of famously No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, Colon Capitalism versus the Climate. And then Julian Brave Noisecat, who is a director of Green New Deal Strategy at Data for Progress, also works with the Natural History Museum, um, and is a journalist who's written for outlets like the Paris Review, The Guardian, The Nation, and, and many others. Um, now, we're not going to say more about the panelists, because you'll actually hear us in a minute um, introduce those, those panelists at a little bit more length. Um, in this series of podcast episodes, after this keynote, you'll also hear... Uh, the talks from three other panels. Um, one panel that really looks at mining the New Deal legacy, a second panel that kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of making this thing happen, and a third panel that talks about building power uh, and sort of laying out bold visions for a Green New Deal. Um, Kate, it was really cool to have you helping us shape this. Um, you're not a full-time academic, and that means that you sort of know something about the world, which is a really good <laughs> asset to have for somebody who is thinking and communicating all the time. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> What's it like to be surrounded by eggheads? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, coming from journalism, having done kind of student organizing, uh, can be easy to find academic spaces a little kind of stultifying. Uh, and, you know, I think folks can be in their own heads a lot. Folks can be, uh, you know, not really speaking to the real world. And I think it was great about the day was just seeing organizers interact, not just with like, you know, the academy sort of generally, but like also different disciplines, right? And it's seeing disciplines interact with one another, sort of thinking through this question all together and really trying to work through, you know, how do we actually do this thing? Uh, I think as any good intellectually honest event should do, uh, this event raised, I think, you know, a lot of questions, answered some questions, but, you know, we have a lot of work to do, which is the uh, sort of ethos, I think, of, of this keynote and, you know, other other panels throughout the day. Um, but yeah, I think it's rare to, to go to a conference and have it feel productive. Yeah, I think it was it was pretty remarkable um, to for David Roberts, who's on one of the panels you'll hear from later, and is, I think, leans into his title as like the official grump of Twitter, um, to be so excited about the event that he literally tweeted and like tagged all of us and said, this is the best conference hands down he's ever been to. And he then sent me an email making the same comment, which Coming from David Roberts, who like I think is great, but like loves being a grump. That's pretty remarkable. And we should also say that you know this conference it sold out. Um, like we it was free, but like we ran out of registration spaces for people, which has in anyone's sort of institutional memory at Penn never happened. We were in the biggest room on campus, so it seats about fourteen hundred people, 
It was also packed. Uh, there were maybe like 10 or 12 seats open at the end of this sort of keynote. That's also never happened. Um, it was pretty remarkable. And I think just sort of says a lot about both the people we invited who are all amazing, but about the moment we're in now where I think people are really hungry for events like this to come together and bring organizers and academics and all kinds of other people from the entire spectrum of like what we might think of as the left together to figure out how we fucking win. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, as one of the um, panels you'll hear later in the series kind of makes clear, I think there there's this idea that uh, people outside of academia, outside of, you know, institutions that think about these sorts of questions a lot, um, aren't interested in this kind of stuff, really, you know, don't want to engage. And we just need to really kind of dumb down arguments and, and just speak to some kind of lowest common denominator. Um, and I think, people really are hungry for ideas, right? There's a, you know, really rich history of working class intellectualism, of folks studying. Um, Raj Patel talks about this um, in, in one of the panels really, really beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just my duty to say, but it's true. We need a Green New University. I mean, people are hungry for ideas. And uh, I think part of what we're trying to do, Billy, um, here at Penn and through our work is to, like, fight our way to the table and have something productive to offer. So, you know, the Green New Deal, I think, demands of all of us profound changes, uh, rapid, unprecedented changes and um, all that we do in any institutions that we are affiliated with. And those changes have to be oriented toward extremely rapid decarbonization, getting safe and, and liberation. Uh, and so, yeah, the university system of the United States is arguably not entirely set up <laughs> One in might order say. to facilitate, encourage, lift up the process of working people, ordinary people, liberating themselves from the structures that oppress them. Um, so we need to make some changes, but we're not alone in this. It seems like what's so great about the Green New Deal is that you have the people who are like, this has to happen. We have to win. And that determination to win and that determination to work together and to forge new solidarities um, really does make for a pretty special atmosphere. It was pretty remarkable. I mean, one of our partners in this event, uh, the Buell Center at Columbia, literally bused 150 people down from New York for this event. And for the folks who couldn't fit on the bus, they live streamed the event in their sort of central gallery. So everyone in the school could watch this is the GSAP, the School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia. Um, and they are not the only ones. We had folks flying in from California. We had folks coming from all over the country for this. And of course, we had, I think, when I checked the day after the conference, about 5,000 or so people who watched in real time on our live stream, which all that tells me, in addition to like the many things we'll talk about in this series, is that we need to do a lot more of them. So with that, we're going to head straight to the panel. You'll hear Billy and I introducing the keynote. And you'll hear the keynote, and it's great. And keep downloading episodes, because after this, we've got three more episodes taking you through a whole day of just brilliant, brilliant conversations. And for those of you listening, yes, in the show notes, as historically we have done, we will be posting articles um, about these topics, and in particular, by the three of us, including Billy's absolutely landmark article in Places Journal uh, on design and the Green New Deal. So check out the show notes, check out the future episodes. Let's save our future and build a Green New Deal. Uh, we're incredibly lucky to have any one of these three here tonight. To have all three here is is really unbelievable. So it's it's my pleasure to, to, to be able to introduce our first uh, speaker for tonight for tonight's main event, um, Naomi Klein. 
who uh, almost needs no introduction. <laughs> if you were foolish enough to not buy her new book, uh, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, today at lunch, you should do that immediately when you get home tonight, after you've had like a drink or two. That's when I purchase all my books. Um, <laughs> But I also want to say, I mean, Naomi's written so many things, and I learned last night, too, as we were having dinner, that she wrote a piece that I may never be able to find, but that I really want to find about David Frum and, like, the, the worst man from maybe, like, the worst, like, group of people uh, in the world um, that Canada somehow inflicted on us. Um, but I also want to say, like, the book that brought me to this set of topics that I think without which I would probably not be in this room, um, I would probably not be in landscape architecture, um, and I probably would not have the politics that I have, was the shock doctrine. It, it radicalized a generation, and I'm so thankful for your work on it. So thank you for being here. So I will now have the pleasure of introducing first Jane McAlevey. Um, big hand, round of applause for Jane. Um, Jane has been an organizer, an activist her whole life. Jane has a long history in the environmental justice movement. Jane has a history in the Latin America or Central American Solidarity Movement, um, which is meaningful to me. My mother is Guatemalan. Um, and Jane has been an extraordinary labor organizer and has lately taken to writing up her wisdom, um, three books that really stand out, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell. Fantastic book. This book, actually, when I was a graduate student and we were organizing a graduate union, we read this book, Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, and we made it into our organizing manual. And on the basis of so many of the lessons in that book, we took on our own union leadership and replaced some of it. We took on the corporate university, and we won the first major private sector graduate worker contract in this country. And yes, we did it by using practices like open bargaining, which our union local claims to have never heard of. Um, Jane also wrote No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age. And you can anticipate in January, on January 1st, I believe, her new book, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy. Um, Jane McAlevey. And I'm also very pleased to introduce Julian Brave Noisecat. Um, <laughs> befitting his millennial status, Julian has the most jobs and the best titles. Julian is Director of Green New Deal Strategy for Data for Progress. Data for Progress is a great new organization which, full disclosure, has named Billy, me, and Kate fellows <laughs> in the weeks leading up to this. <laughs> Yeah, after the invitation. Julian was at 350 when we invited him. He also has a, a bit of a churn. Um, Julian is also a writer. He's written for an enormous number of publications. I won't list them all, but they include The Guardian, The Nation, The Paris Review, The Walrus, great Canadian magazine. Um, the list goes on. Um, and Julian has also done a ton of incredible TV work and, second title, Narrative Change Director at the Natural History Museum. That's not the Museum of Natural History, but the Natural History Museum, which is a very cool, insurgent, democratic, radical project. So, Julian Brave Noisecat. <laughs> and with that, our final panelists. Hi, everyone. How's it going? <laughs>
This has been an amazing day. Um, I, of course, want to thank our incredible organizers and everyone who's made this possible. Uh, I feel really privileged to be in dialogue with these two brilliant people. Um, we have decided that we are going moderate, moderation free. So we're just, you know, it's, a, it's an experiment in uh, radical democracy. It could go awry, as they so often do. Um, <laughs> no, it won't. Um, Billy, I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned The Shock Doctrine. It's a book I don't um, talk about all that much. It came out 12 years ago. Um, and you know, when I'm in climate spaces, I tend to, to reference my work specifically on climate change. But I found myself, over the course of this um, really stimulating day, thinking about uh, some of the research that, that I did for the shock doctrine. Because um, I often think when we are gaming out what it would actually mean to win a transformational, uh, life-saving agenda, like a Green New Deal, we don't talk enough about the kind of pushback that we inevitably uh, would receive. And you know, we, we know that we are facing a lot of pushback, and, and we've talked about the kind of the outsized number of attacks um, and, and, and misrepresentations, but that really is nothing compared to what we would face if there was an actual real prospect of the sorts of transformations that we have been talking about being turned into policy and law on the ground. Um, because it is absolutely true, as was said earlier today, that the best way to understand the neoliberal era, the, the alignment, the political alignment uh, that Barshney was speaking about since the Reagan-Thatcher era is as a counter-revolution against the original New Deal. And in the Shock Doctrine, I quote a letter uh, sent from Milton Friedman to Augusto Pinochet when uh, Friedman was uh, offering Pinochet free advice um, on how to uh, um, introduce what he at that time called shock shock, uh, um, the shock tactic, it was before they started calling it shock therapy, uh, to, to, to change policies all at once. Um, but what he wrote in the letter was that, that things went wrong in your country and mine um, when people started thinking that they could do good things with other people's money, referring specifically to the New Deal. Um, and I actually, the, the tactic that I describe in the shock doctrine, right, um, of you know, this sort of quote that I used to know by heart, but because I haven't quoted it lately, I, I had to look up right before I came on stage, which is Friedman's quote at the beginning of freedom to choose, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable, right? And that is a very good way of understanding the right-wing think tank complex that Friedman was so integral to building up 
um, that it was a place to keep the ideas warm and ready um, until some sort of crisis presented itself or was created that could be used to push through very unpopular policies, right? Um, now, what I think is, is, is often um, misunderstood about what Friedman was referencing and why he understood that moments of crisis were uh, moments that you had to prepare for intellectually is precisely because he hated the New Deal so much. What he understood was that moments of crisis, particularly crisis in capital, pr cr crises produced by capital, actually lend themselves to radical progressive change, not radical right-wing change. Um, and he knew that because he was a student of the original New Deal, right? Um, and so that whole intellectual architecture that has been invoked very often, um, and when we think about how sort of outgunned we are, um, it emerged to prevent crises from going left um, and to keep right-wing ideas ready, right? And so this is, I think, the real significance of the intellectual work that has been going on here today um, and that is, um, is represented by the whole Green New Deal project is that finally um, we are getting our ideas ready, right? Because for far too long, I think progressives, leftists, whatever you, your term of choice, even the fact that people are afraid to say leftist, is, a, uh, is symptomatic of the fact that for far too long, we have given in to red baiting, we have shied away from fighting the battle of ideas, we have not um, been courageous in expressing a worldview, a competing worldview, um, with that barbaric worldview that is cooking the planet um, and allowing people to die in deserts and oceans and concentration camps around the world. Um, and we have accepted strings attached from foundations um, who wanted us in issue silos instead of talking about ideas and ideologies and the world that we actually want and the intersections between all of our issues. And so I think what is beautiful about the conversations that we're having is that we are finally getting out of our silos. We are, artic are articulating a vision of the world. We are talking about competing governing values and ideas, right? It's taken us a long time to get to this point, and it is really exciting um, that we're ready to go there and ready to have our ideas ready for when the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Um, the crises, we don't have to wait for them. They're here. We're in a time of rolling nonstop crises. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think about our moment, I'm interested in fire these days. <laughs> um, I th they're the obvious fires of, uh, of, our, of our warming planet, and the, many of them quite literal, as we know. Um, but there are also these political fires of, of, of rising fascism, um, of overt white supremacy, um, of many different forms of 
supremacist ideology, Hindu supremacy, in different countries. It is expressing itself, the in-group, the out-group, um, expresses itself differently, but we see similar architectures, similar contractors building similar concentration camps and similar walls. Um, we see a cross-pollination of ideas between the Bolsonaros and the Trumps and the Modis and the Netanyahus all around the world, the hierarchy of humanity, the animalizing of the other, the, um, the, the powerful resurgence of the ugliest ideologies that rank human life that are baked into the founding of settler colonial nations um, in the, in the, the, the terrenalius and doctrines of discoveries, the scientific racism that was needed to justify the stealing of African bodies and the stealing of indigenous land. Those ideas were needed to found these countries and to justify genocide. They were never confronted, they, and they have never gone away. They ebb and flow, and they rise when they are needed. And we are in a moment where they are needed to justify the barbarism of what this system is producing, right? And so we have to understand how those fires, the, the, the fires, the climate fires and the fires of rising fascism are feeding each other and are intersecting, right? They're not separate. And we also need to find our own fire and really be a third kind of fire. Um, and this is you know, why it's so exciting, I think, to be in conversation with both of you, because we've talked a lot about people power. Um, but I don't, but we all know that we are not there with the kind of firepower we need to fight fire with fire. And I think we should, shouldn't be afraid of fire. Fire, you know, our fires are not the fires of destruction and annihilation. We're talking about the fires of creation. We are talking about the fires of reparation. Um, and, you know, we, but we are not going to win against the forces that we are up against if we just sort of kind of support the Green New Deal, right? Um, we are going to win with a kind of ferocious energy that I think we're seeing some really powerful glimpses of from the Sunrise Movement, but we know, um, you know, from the slide that Raj Patel showed us at the beginning of the day in the first session, with the spike in strikes that is what won the original New Deal, we've got a hell of a long way to go before we build that kind of power. And that's, I think, the discussion we want to have. And um, I can't think of, uh, of two better people to have it with. So Julian, how are you feeling? How's, how's, your, how's your fire? <laughs> um. I'm feeling great. Well, firstly, uh, Wade Kohoidup, uh, Julian Brave Noise Cat, when squexed, uh, when Kika had a squest, where Alexander Roddy, Ethwan Kekich had a squest, where Ed Archie Noise Cat, Sequachbuch, and Estatlik, and it's Eskin, which Dequin, let one poopsman, Eliotik Timichwe, Lenape Ulu. Hello, everyone. Uh, I wanted to bring in um, my most immediate ancestors before we started here. Uh, my, my mother and my father, um, because we are all connected, not just bio by biology, but by physics now, uh, to all of the people who came before and 
all who will come after. This is a moment of immense, immense crisis. I also wanted to acknowledge uh, not just our wonderful hosts here, who I have successfully recruited as Data for Progress fellows, uh, Billy, Daniel, and, and Kate, it was a little uh, successful organizing gambit, uh, but also the, the first peoples of this land, uh, the Lenape Nation, uh, whose homelands we stand upon today. Pennsylvania was founded by uh, the Penn family. And a great deal of this state, really a colony, uh, was acquired through a, a Trumpian land con called the Walking Purchase in the 1700s. And so to Naomi's point about counter-revolutions and, and revolutions, the roots of counter-revolutionary forces uh, on this continent run very, very deep. And uh, indigenous peoples know a thing or two about fighting real estate moguls and, and people who are willing to go to great lengths to uh, get you out of your land. We've been doing that for a long time. I wanted to bring physics into the room because, not because I'm a scientist, or I'm particularly good at science. I actually was always more of like a, a book kid. Um, you know, the science <coughs> labs and everything were never really for me. But because it is, it is the reason why we're here. In May, atmospheric concentration of, of carbon dioxide reached 415 parts per million for the first time in roughly 3 million years. The last time that happened, trees grew on Antarctica. The Greenland ice sheet did not yet exist. Seas were 50 feet higher than they are today. And our species, people who we would identify as human, did not walk the earth. That is the circumstance that we find ourselves in today. I also wanted to talk about physics because I think a lot of what the brilliant, brilliant uh, panelists who spoke to you throughout the day were talking about was physics of another nature, and that's social physics. The impending collision of an unstoppable force with an immovable object. Now, what do I mean by that? The unstoppable force that we see rising is a movement a, a group of people coming to consciousness with great credit to young people, the Sunrise Movement here, to the youth climate strikes abroad, and also to young people like the International Indigenous Youth Council who led and started the movement at Standing Rock. It's young people over and over and over again who are calling us into this fight. Mm -hmm. That unstoppable force, that social movement, is, as Varshini Prakash, my good friend, said earlier today, intent upon building to the scale and the discipline to change society. They are, are building upon a set of, of social movement theories and social science, uh, particularly Erica Chenoweth's research, which essentially transforms Gandhi's theory of nonviolent change into uh, social science that says that we need to get to scale to be able to achieve massive change. And of course, that is what 415 parts per million tells us, that that is the kind of change that we need.
But we're also talking about the ways in which that movement needs to grow. It needs to not only be a movement led by young people, but we need older people to join us. It doesn't need to only be a multi-generational movement, it also needs to be a multi-racial movement. And we know that, we know that for the environmental movement, that has always been a problem. It doesn't need to just be a movement of people who gather in places like the University of Pennsylvania, but it also needs to be a movement of people who work, the working classes, people in the labor movement. It needs to be that too. So we have a lot to do to build up that unstoppable force. But we also, and, and I think that there were a number of panelists who spoke to this very well, we also face the immovable object that is the United States Senate that is the Electoral College, that is the filibuster, that is the ideology of tinfoil hatism that has charaded as a legitimate theory of science for the last 30 years, that has been propped up by the Kochs of the world, by the Mercers of the world, and that has been adopted by the governing party of this country. And that's the denial of climate science, the denial of climate change. Those are the immovable institutions, the immovable objects that we face. And the big question, in my view, of our time is what happens in that, in that thing that has been identified by a paradox for centuries and, and even millennia of thinkers? What happens when the immovable object encounters the unstoppable force? And I guess that I would like to sort of conclude my little opening bit, following off of Naomi. I mean, just hard act to, to follow. It's really great to be here on stage with such brilliant, brilliant thinkers. I have to admit, I feel a little bit out of my element. Um, with that, I really hope that we are intent on winning. Mm -hmm. Because losing, mm -hmm. coming from a people who lost two continents, losing is incredibly painful. It marks itself upon you, your community, and they're even saying now with studies about intergenerational trauma, it marks itself upon your DNA. It becomes part of who you are. And so I think that, you know, uh, turning now to Jane, who has thought more about how we build that unstoppable force maybe than anyone else, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts about <laughs> how we win. How do we get out of this circumstance? <gasps> Thanks. Thank you. Uh, it's, it is a super pleasure um, to be on stage with the two of you. And uh, I had no idea that the segue would actually be the word winning, because it's like my favorite frickin' word, actually. <laughs> um, actually, there's a few words I really like, but that's one of them. So one is winning, uh, one uh, is power, and the other is strategy. Um, and I like to talk about all of them. And what goes with all of them, in my personal opinion, um, is strikes. So, um, Going back to the going back to the going back to the, the opening um, slides for a minute um, about how we go, the opening panel and the opening slides. I will say one thing uh, that I learned today that I had uh, never learned. 
um, that was on Raj's slide, which was really great for me, which was I had never, ever heard of the cowboy strike. And for people who know me, that's a big deal. So um, I was like, the cowboy strike? And it was wall to wall with the cooks. Anyway, um, so I do want to talk about winning. And despite the incredible obstacles and the challenges, of which there are many, and I think we're going to get into some of them tonight here, um, I feel like we can actually do this. And um, it's going to be hard as hell. Um, I think that was said several times today. Um, it's going to be hard as hell. But the deadline, I mean, I keep using a sort of window of like, what does it take to build, uh, what does it take to reform sort of moribund unions and turn them into like really fighting unions is sort of a metaphor for me of how do we turn a sort of moribund-ish, not very strong progressive movement into like a kick-ass movement that has the power to win. Um, and I think it can take just a few years. And I think we need to move as fast as we have seen some of the changes happening um, in the labor movement, and by which I mean what I call the mission-driven uh, women and women of color-dominated labor movement, which, by the way, is the future of the US labor movement and the future of the Canadian labor movement. Um, so, um, and I mean that like statistically too, like literally in, in Canada right now, the number is it's just over 50%. Like when you think of what's the trade union movement, people usually don't realize that more than half of the Canadian labor movement at this point already um, is women um, and women of color. And we're trending close to that line in the United States. And I think we're beginning to see what that looks like on the streets um, for the last couple of years. So uh, it is a different moment and it's an exciting moment. So. For me, I think what it's going to take for us to win a Green New Deal is essentially the same strategy it took to win the original New Deal, which was, in fact, a period of extraordinary strikes. Um, what I keep thinking about when I look back at the New Deal is that people talk about the sit-down strikes that began in 1936 and 1937. The truth is, the strikes that actually helped make the New Deal happen and condition the rest of what happened in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the era that we think about were strikes that are sort of uh, airbrushed out of our history, which were massive, militant, sometimes bloody, very intense strikes that happened in 1933, 1934, and 1935 that forced the passage of the National Labor Relations Act in the summer of 1935. We did not get to the sit-down strikes that then began to sort of redefine what people think of, broadly speaking, as like the American dream, complicated as it was. It didn't quite involve everybody, but it was a period of massive forward progress. That was like what we won in 1936 and 37. But what got us Social Security, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and the National Labor Relations Act, check this out, that happened in three months. Those three laws were passed in three months from the spring of 1935 to the summer of 1935. And in the fall is when the, the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organizations happened in November in response to the passage of national labor law, like the first, the right to guaranteed collective bargaining. So um, what led to them were super high risk, super smart, frankly led by socialists and a lot of, uh, yeah, socialists in the trade union movement in the 1930s. So, Whenever, like all day long, there were so many comments that I heard today. Um, and I think we are, just to, just to pick up on one thing that was said earlier in several places, and also by Naomi just now, like 
there's a rot, the fires that are burning. Mm -hmm. we, have super, we have a super scary set of fires out there. Um, and I'm just off the plane from Germany, where the AFD, which is the neo-Nazi party, is winning elections right now. So, uh, you know, we have, and we, and you know, Donald Trump, the union busters in the White House, right? So, and it isn't just Donald Trump, it's the forces that put Trump in the White House. So we're in this period where super exciting things are happening, and also some super scary things. And the question is, how do we win? In Germany, by the way, in the 1930s, the very first thing that Hitler did was ban the trade unions. What FDR did was create the space for trade unions, right? Option A, option B. So we need to have a wicked embrace right now of what it means to build progressive radical trade unions in this country again, and that's crucial to how we're actually gonna to get to a Green New Deal. And people talk about strikes, but we gotta talk about like, what does it mean to have progressive radical trade unions again? So. The thing that I wanted to just expand on for a minute is in every single what we call new organizing campaign, like how do workers in this country form a union, most people here will have no idea because there's so few of them right now. But like when workers form a trade union, they have to first win a super seriously rigged election. Think about Stacey Abrams' election in Georgia that she actually won, but she's not governor, sadly. Like, that level of rigging of elections is what happens in every single National Labor Relations Board election in this country. So now you can get a sense for, like, what my life work has been, is helping teach workers how to overcome the same kind of odds that Stacey Abrams faced, where the guy who was literally in charge of the elections was also running against her. Like, that's every boss fight in every workplace in the United States of America. So first, workers have to learn how to overcome super seriously gerrymandered rigged elections every time. And then the second thing they have to do is build even more power to win what's called their first contract. I'm gonna argue that the steps that we're not doing in the progressive movement, we could learn from the labor movement how to do them better. Because when workers wanna win and make radical change in their lives, they have to win a rigged, elect win a rigged election and then build to super majority unity and participation and power to actually win the policy gains that they were fighting for in the already rigged election that's been gerrymandered where the boss is in control. And by the way, what the boss is using as their secret weapons every day are doubt, fear, and division. Racism, sexism, overt, every single thing going on in this country is exactly what happens in every single unionization election in America. So when you wonder like, why are those number is so down. Um, there's a reason for it. So, but for those of us who have had the pleasure of like working with workers and winning lots of new organizing campaigns and then going on to have the workers make profound, radical policy changes in their life, um, we have a lot of lessons to learn from it. And it has to do with building supermajority power and it has to do with like putting the hard issues right in front of us on the table all the time and grappling with them really hard. And so, to me, building supermajority support, knowing how to do it, having really hard conversations with people, confronting really difficult conversations in the workplace among people who have no cultural, political tradition. The only thing that workers in this country have when they decide it's time to form a union is A, probably a really crappy boss in really bad conditions. Welcome to the United States of America. Mm -hmm. um, and B, uh, they share a common enemy, which is their employer at the moment they're deciding to try and form a union. So um, that kind of is a metaphor for the country. So we might have time to get into the elements of how that actually happens. Um, but every time I wake up in this country and see 
whatever the latest thing the idiot in the White House said, um, I think to myself, like the union busters in the White House, what is it we do in trade union campaigns to win? How do we unify? How do we build support? And it's about having hard conversations, facing the conversations, raising people's expectations that they can win, which is something we desperately need to do in this country, or we're going to trend towards the populist fire, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. So part of what we have to do is talk a lot about like what we do in trade union campaigns, which is the very first thing we have to do is raise people's expectations that their life can actually be different. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of what we have to do to get the conversation going. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I just wanted to, to jump in on is we know, like, we, we know we are not where we need to be um, in terms of having workers in this discussion um, invested enough in wanting to win a Green New Deal because it is absolutely clear how that is going to transform their working lives for the better, not just like better than environmental apocalypse, but better than shitty jobs right now, right? Um, and so we have to, I think we have a, a structural problem, just in the sense that there is this idea, this framework, a great resolution that calls for democratic participation. Rihanna explained to us how deliberate that was, that it is not handing this down from on high and saying, this is what it is. It's an invitation to organize. I think the tricky thing is that because we don't really have, because the institutions of the left in this country are so profoundly frayed and so overburdened with those other fires, right? Um, uh, whether it is the fires of union busting or the fires of family separation, um, or just like the endless attacks and grinding down, that the people who most need to be organizing and articulating what a Green New Deal would mean in their sectors have the least capacity to do so in a kind of a self-organized way, right? And so this is, this is the, the, the kind of tragedy of the fact that the, the original I, idea was for there to be a, a House committee, right, um, that would actually be fully resourced to spend a year going out and creating uh, town halls and spaces for people to plug in and participate. And so like, I come across people all the time who are like, I love the Green New Deal. How do about, I have no idea how to get involved? Like they're in the women's movement, or you know, they're teachers or nurses, and it's not the path of entry isn't clear yet to enough people who actually are the people who have the most to gain. Um, so I think we have to we have to be honest about that obstacle and strategize around around that obstacle. It's not about laying blame and saying somebody isn't doing enough. It's just like a structural problem of having a you know afraid left and not having this thing resourced. So we have to figure out how to do that. In terms of oh, just one thing I want to say about strikes though is that um, we're not at a point where people are going to walk off the job to fight for a green new deal. But we I think we really have to. Um, recognize that students are striking. They are exercising their power, right, to do the one thing that all students are supposed to do and are indeed required to do by law, you know. I, um, you ask Kamala Harris. 
And they are, they have been striking from school and taking real risks. I mean, there are a lot of schools that, 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 that are not patting them on the head for this, right? Um, and, and now they are calling on us to join them, you know, and there's been some criticism. It's not a real strike and it's, you know, it's not a real, it's not, it's not organized like a real strike, but I think we really need for September 20th, which is coming on fast, to be as big and as strong as it possibly can be, because we have been called by young people who have been striking and pulling off incredible things. March 15th was the first global student climate strike. They had strikes in, on every continent in thousands and thousands of strikes, um, and they had 1.6 million people participating, and it is a, an international movement. It is an internationalist movement. It is a web of young people and children around the world standing up for each other. It is a multiracial movement, right? Um, so I just think that we have been called. Um, they, they have told us that they don't want to be patted on the head and say thanks for the hope. They said join us and it won't be a real strike, but um, we have a chance to really, really show up. Um, so I hope people here at Penn will be walking off the job. And I can say um, I'm on faculty at Rutgers, and I'm very proud that our faculty union has come out in favor of supporting the student strike on the <laughs> So I just want to build off of what, what Jane and Naomi just said. Obviously. Um, won't surprise anyone to say that I have left-leaning tendencies in my politics, um, <laughs> but you know I, I think that that, that that entails an acknowledgement of uh, you know a deep understanding of the power of of, of labor and workers as a source uh, for change, and you know I also have happen to have the great um, misfortune of of living in Washington uh, D.C. this this nation's capital, and um, you know one of the most cited. Uh, sort of tensions in, in uh, sort of underlying the conversation, not just about a Green New Deal, uh, but about climate change and climate politics in the United States, uh, is this, this so-called sort of blue-green split, right? The tensions between environmentalists uh, and labor unions. Uh, and I happen to uh, work at a think tank called Data for Progress that uh, <laughs> the data in that is, is usually referring to public opinion polling. We do a lot of surveys. And, you know, we wanted to, to test this, this sort of uh, common sense that it seems that everyone in, in political circles in, in D.C. seems to hold, that, you know, labor, the labor movement is opposed to environmental aims. So we looked into our, our survey data on the Green New Deal. So this was both sort of the top-line support or opposition to the Green New Deal, as well as a number of, of sub-policies uh, related to the Green New Deal. And we found, actually, that quite to uh, the contrary of this you know, often repeated point that makes headlines seemingly every month, uh, union membership, or coming from a union household, was one of the identifiers that was most correlated with support for the Green New Deal. So I think that there, it's important to first point out that, um, you know, that, 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 that I think that there are obvious ways in which workers and unions uh, can be natural allies for, for the Green New Deal in the same way that they were 
uh, natural allies for the, the original New Deal. And I think it's also important to point out that there are, are significant leaders within the labor movement who uh, are, are very positive about the Green New Deal. Earlier this summer, I was in Detroit where uh, the Sunrise Movement held a rally uh, on the same day as, as the presidential debate, and the SEIU showed up with busloads of their workers all wearing those purple shirts. Their, their president showed up and was you know, out there rallying around the Green New Deal. And that's a big deal. The SEIU is a, an enormous union, and their voice on this, on this matters. We also have people like Sarah Nelson, who are out there you know, in favor of the Green New Deal and pushing uh, for the AFL-CIO presidency. That's a big deal. But it's also important to note that there are some elements of, of the labor movement and particular unions that do sometimes get, get weaponized against us. You know, my, my friends, my relatives who uh, were fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline in Standing Rock, uh, who are continuing the campaign against the Keystone XL Pipeline, have faced opposition from very specific unions within the labor movement. And those unions do have offices on 16th Street, just down the street from the White House. They are willing to go in and, and do the photo op with President Trump when he signs the executive orders for the Dakota Access and the Keystone XL pipeline. So there is some truth to this narrative that there are specific unions within the labor movement that are opposed to the Green New Deal. But I think that it's important to like, recognize how we have allowed this small minority and subset of unions that have particular interests in uh, the continuation of the fossil fuel industry. And I should add that these are workers that we do need to take care of in the transition to a clean and renewable energy economy. But those, those unions have been, able, have been weaponized by a specific set of interests, interests that control the White House right now against a broader potential alignment with, of workers and, and laborers. And I think that it's really important to point that out because most people who get on stage and talk about these dynamics say the opposite thesis. They say that you know, the headline is that the labor movement is opposed to the Green New Deal. And of course, we have to work for it to be different. And in fact, there is a, there's a lot of empirical evidence that suggests it could go the other direction. And it's heading in the other direction. And that's very encouraging to me. Yeah, I think um, you know the jobs versus environment tension has been uh, weaponized, actually, not just recently, but uh, for a very long time in this country. Um, there is an amazing, um, oh, I forget the name. Anyway, I forgot the name. But like when I, so when, with my in my younger years, um, I worked in the environmental justice movement full time. Right, like that was my straight out of sort of student politics. Um, I went to work for the environmental movement for a decade, and it was in the environmental justice sector. Um, and that was like, I think it was referenced earlier, um, that was the moment when the toxic, uh, race and waste, uh, toxic Waste and Race Study came out in eight, 1987 is when I like, decided that when I came, when I was young, so when I was coming of like, age in the movement, uh, coming from a trade union household, as a young person at the time, I thought, 
Um, this is not a labor movement that I want to be in full time right now. It was, it was at the, I would call it one of the lowest points of like the national trade union movement in terms of the image of what unions had um, become. And so I went into the environmental movement. Um, and I went into the environmental justice movement. And we were confronted right away, right, with the exact same divisions, and that was 1987. Um, so for me, the weaponization of the jobs versus environment thing has been real for a long time. So I think there's two things. One is there's like defensive work. Like what's defense? If, if part of what we have to do in the power structure analysis to winning a Green New Deal, like first of all, we have to talk about power structure analysis. And then when we start thinking about who are the forces that can't be moved and have to be crushed, that's part of the equation. Mm -hmm. That's just, it just is. And then like there are people who are not kind of like, like there's no, there's no like winning over the hearts and minds of like CEOs and you know what I mean? Like they'd be forced to surrender. Like there is gonna be a forcing of people to surrender. So, and by the way, you know, I've had my fair share, thank God, with thousands and thousands of workers at a time to force a bunch of son of a bitches to surrender against their wishes. <laughs> so we know how to do it, right? So I think on the, on the, on the challenging side, on the difficult side, as, a, as someone who come, I'm the, I'm the you know, daughter of, uh, I was raised in a single father household. Um, I'm the daughter of someone who comes out of the building trades and construction trades on the left side of it, right? So I have an experience with leftists in the building construction trades, which is um, to say it's a very complicated movement. Um, and by the way, you know, my old man, uh, I'm always comfortable and sort of like around at least planners, I would say, because I was thinking when I first got here today, the lessons that I've always carried, that we always have to bridge the divide, that we have to like work across differences and work hard at them, I think come from my childhood. I was born into a house, again, very union strong house. Uh, many of my siblings still are union strong like me, but, um, and my father was put into office by the trade unions. So he was like a left, I don't know, like, almost like what you would think of as a Bernie Sanders character today, but at a local level. And when, he went on to become famous because um, he passed something like a mini <laughs> Green New Deal before I was born, in the mid-60s. Um, and it was the first serious attempt at, at doing something called controlled growth in the New York City suburbs. Um, and, and there was a very famous case called Golden v. Ramapo that was like my childhood, um, which was the first time that a point system was ever put in place to challenge real estate developers and beat them. And I think that the reason why it went up to the Supreme Court and when the Supreme Court rejected it, it's when it became law. Um, and it's still read in most zoning law books um, today. And it's a powerful lesson for me as a little girl because to do it, to actually pass a really radical controlled growth policy that favored open space, farmland, agriculture from like the impending crazy crush of New York City suburbs. Um, it was really because of his relationship to the building construction trades. The real estate and developers thought they had the building trades on their side. And his intense relationship coming from the world of the building trades meant that he actually peeled the potential opposition to a radical plan away from the developers. He actually peeled it away, and then they went on to build affordable housing by also peeling away the opposition to affordable housing, which was we gotta pay the workers well if we're gonna put up serious numbers of affordable housing 
in at the time then and still now today. So I think there's like defense and offense. On the defense side, before I get to offense, on the defense side, on the vexing question of like the weaponization of a small number of workers um, that are trotted out all the time, I feel like there's, a, there's both important semantics. I think Mary was talking about words and word choices and semantics earlier. Like there's, there's semantical, which is, has to be a reflection of our real politics when we talk about the Green New Deal, which is everyone just says there's going to be a lot of jobs. Or a variant, when people are doing it better, is we're going to create good jobs. And then maybe it's going to, we're going to create millions of good jobs. Like that's the sort of rhetoric. Um, and I got to tell you, if you're sitting in the state of Michigan um, or the state of Ohio or any number of places where since quote unquote globalization, which to me is just a massive union busting project, by the way, folks, it's all it was starting in the 1970s, globalization is just union busting, right? <laughs> what does it mean when you move all the best jobs out of the country and then put people in competition with people making a dollar a day? That is effing union busting. So from the early 1970s on, what people have been hearing is, don't worry, as your factories come down, don't worry, as we take your job away, we're gonna replace it with more jobs. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna be good jobs. And workers have been hearing this shit since the 1970s, and it's a lie, because the jobs that have been created are bad jobs that pay shitty wages all over this country. So we can't just say, we're gonna create jobs. We actually have to say, we're gonna hold the existing, here's my rap, okay, ready? This is rap training. <laughs> We're gonna hold the existing standards that workers who are working in not just the fossil fuel industry, but like big ag, the related, right? Because as we heard today um, from Leah, it's not at all just the energy sector, right? It's a whole bunch of sectors. So it's like, we have to be able to say that workers who are working in the sectors that need to be transitioned will be guaranteed the same standards, the same pension, the same wages, the same healthcare benefits, though hopefully we get Medicare for all, and we take that one on the equation, but um, they have to be told that, we are gonna, that they're gonna hold the same standards they have right now, because by the way, that good standard of something more like a 45 or $50 an hour job, which sounds a whole hell of a lot better than a $15 an hour job, that has to become the standard that they hold and believe they can hold going into this new economy, and that has to set the standard for what every single home care worker, educator, teacher, personal care aide will also make. So on the defensive side, it's like what workers here is like we're celebrating 15 dollar an hour wage campaigns. And I have to tell you, since I work with and have negotiated contracts against very tough employers with workers who make far more than that, like it's really problematic for them. Like the vision we're creating is you can lose the job where you're making 55, 60 bucks an hour, which is a family supporting wage in the fossil fuel economy because it's super heavily subsidized. We gotta rip the subsidies away from them and shift the subsidies to the clean economy because that's what allows us to pay the kind of wages and benefits that workers in the fossil fuel economy make. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when we talk about it, we gotta shift the subsidies. That takes yeah. serious power. By the way, more power than we have right now. Yeah. That takes strikes. Well, how are we gonna get to the strikes if we don't do a little bit of inoculation and get real about what it means to say, there's gonna be good jobs. 
Uh, there's going to be retraining. Like that crap has been talked about for 45 years, and people are desperate, living in a state of misery with crappy jobs. Every worker who has lost a job in the service of, like, let's move to the service economy, um, is struggling like mad right now. And so, so that's on the sort of defensive side of what we have to do. And then on the offensive side, because the future labor movement is mostly women of color, um, and they are already wrapping their arms everywhere I've looked around the Green New Deal, um, right? Like the women-led sector, the teacher strikes, the education strikes, the broader than teachers, their education strikes, um, nurses and healthcare workers, right? That's SEIU, that's California nurses, that's a whole bunch of, that's PASNAP. There's a lot of nurses unions and healthcare workers unions that have long embraced the move to a, um, a Green New Deal. So the largest numerical sectors which is different than strategic power, but the largest numerical sectors of the trade union movement already embrace the Green New Deal. So, but then just to go to what Varshini was talking about at one point, um, just, to, just to close this thought, to your point, to me, it's we have to be able to answer the question of where do we have to build the power, who's building the power, and what are we doing to build it? It isn't just 3.5% and 11 million people. It's where are they? Who are they? And what are they doing to create the kind of crisis that's going to bring corporations to their knees in this country and create the space for a legislative negotiation um, around how we get to the Green New Deal? So that's, um, yeah. Yeah. That. <laughs> Naomi, are there, sorry, can I ask a question? Are there lessons from the um, the LEAP work you've been doing in Canada that you think? It seems like it's on topic to this, relates to this. Yeah. Um, I mean, in all ways, uh, but I mean, I, I, I think most people probably don't know anything about it, and I'm not going to spend too much time because I know Americans really don't care about Canada at all. <laughs> um, but <laughs> not uh, they, they not snuck true. two Canadians on, on stage I know, here. it's like two to one. Okay, you need like multiple nations. Two to one. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, in, in, in uh, I guess it was 2015 or 2014, 2015, um, uh, a group of us in Canada uh, we, we convened a gathering of 60 movement leaders uh, to write a people's platform, um, which is kind of a little bit of a proto-Green New Deal, which is called the Leap Manifesto. Um, and it's a short document um, that the text of which was negotiated with some of the most important indigenous elders in Canada. Um, we had a lot of the major trade unions in the room, including the head of the, of the CLC, which is our official, our, our, our AFL-CIO. Um, we negotiated with Unifor, the largest um, private sector union, which represents oil workers um, in the tar sands. They ended up making sure there was no keep it in the ground language in the LEAP manifesto and then didn't sign it anyway and trashed us publicly. Um, Oops. Oops. Um, we did have the largest public sector union, at, you know, not, not only signing it, but launching it with us. We had a lot of artists. I mean, this was another big piece of, uh, of what made the leap go viral in Canada was that we, um, we you know, some, I joke that like Canadian celebrities and oxymoron, but we got all 10, including <laughs> not Drake, but we can get Drake. But, um, 
We, we got Leonard Cohen. Uh, so just because we all sang there is a crack in everything that, you know, it's one of, one of the last things Leonard Cohen did before he died was sign the Leap Manifesto. Oh. And he never, never would sign, he'd never get involved in politics. But, but we were very touched by that. Um, and that, having that sort of cultural leadership um, mattered a lot. Um, it was a rough ride, though. I mean, we, you know, the, the Alberta Federation of Labor uh, smeared us. Um, you know, there's this strategy of lying and lying and lying about you and then going, they're toxic. Let's just call it something else and start over. And the truth is, you know, and this will happen with, it's already happening with the Green New Deal. Oh, I support it. I just think the, the, the Green New Deal is now kind of toxic because it's been trashed on Fox so much. Whatever we do will be trashed. It will be made toxic. And we don't, cannot afford to start over and over and over and over again. Um, I think one of, the, one of the most successful things that the LEAP team did was an example of how we kind of need to go deep sector by sector, and that was with one of, the, one of our most radical unions, which is the postal workers, the posties, the wonderful socialist posties. Um, and they were, they were part of the negotiation. And, and by the way, what Jane is saying is absolutely true. One of the things that, 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 that the trade unions in the room said to us while we were writing this, this document was that the word transition even if you call it a just transition, yeah. the word transition is what you hear right before you get fired. Yeah. Workers hate and the word transition. Um, and it was just like, we've been throwing it around thinking, you know, this is going to be great. The unions will love it. Just transition. And they're like, no, just like that's toxic. Um, so, but, but democratic participation in the retraining, um, that, getting that language in, not just there will be retraining money, but that workers will design the retraining programs. Um, so a couple, so, but, but coming back to the postal workers, um, the, the, the post office around the world is under attack because yeah. we're getting our mail differently. At the time that we launched the leap, um, we, um, we had still had, it was pre, pre pretty boy, um, we still had a right wing government <laughs> in Canada. Um, uh, the Harper government, and they had this idea that they were going to attack the post office, the public post office, so hard that they were going to eliminate home delivery, which is pretty radical. Um, and the postal workers could have just ran a campaign, which was just like the kinds of campaign that, that we've seen from the public sector for a long time, which is just like, please stop hurting us, you know, like just... Um, and instead, they, they, they came to the LEAP team and said, we want to work with you on applying the principles of the LEAP manifesto to the post office. What would a post office of the future look like? So we worked with them on this plan. I'm looking at my partner, Avi Lewis, because he's strategic director for the LEAP and really should be saying all this, not me. Um, but, they, but we came up with this plan called Delivering Community Power. And it's, it's, it's visionary trade unionism because it's recognizing that we do, you know, that, that we do get, get our mail differently. We send emails, we use FedEx. You know, there are reasons to reimagine the post office. And so what they did was say, okay, well, if we need to get to 100% renewable energy in a hurry and we're gonna put justice at the center, what would the post office look like? And they pointed out that there are more post offices in Canada than there are Tim Hortons. And I know there are some Canadians in the audience who know how significant that is. Um, this is a huge piece of public infrastructure that is in virtually every community. Why would we just sell it off? Are there more than ice rinks, though? Oh, ice rinks. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, 
but um, and so they so, so they took the best of of, of the po post offices around the world and said, okay, what could this be? We could have charging stations out front of every post office. We could have solar panels on the roof. We could have a domestically made um, delivery fleet uh, that's entirely electric. And the postal delivery vehicles are the largest vehicle fleet in the country. Um, we could have postal banking that would be, uh, that would be encouraging community-controlled renewable energy. And when people delivered the mail, they could also be checking in on the elderly, and they could be delivering local, locally grown food. Um, and is this beautiful? You know, and and to me, it's sort of it's just an example of like what would it mean for there to really be dem a democratic process in this country, a participatory democratic process, where even though we don't have the infrastructure, we like every sector by sector. Workplaces, but also you know the women's movement, the racial justice movement, the migrant rights movement. So many people who need to be part of this discussion, right? Um, where we were, um, uh, where the goals that are set out, these incredibly bold goals and principles, were were taken in and there was the space to go, okay, what would, what would it look like? What would this mean to the border? What would this mean in every single school, right? Um, and to get the kind of buy-in that would be so exciting that people would rush to the polls and vote for it, right? Because it is so much better than, you know, not just that apocalyptic future, but the present. I mean, and maybe that seems like something, I guess my question to you, Jane, I mean, I, I feel really strongly that we've, strategically made an error in these so-called blue-green alliances where we go after the toughest to get workers first, right? And th that often breaks down. And part of that has to do with the image we have in our head of what a green job is. Like, it's a guy in a hard hat putting up a solar panel or a wind turbine, and that's great. And there's tons of green jobs, and there's lots of research that shows us that. Many of you may have heard me do this shtick before, but, you know, Teaching kids is also low carbon. Um, taking care of the elderly is also low carbon. Making art is also low carbon if we design it right. Um, and so there, these are sectors where there's much, much, much less resistance and we can build a counterpower to the most intransigent forces that are very boss aligned, as we know, um, to, to eventually hold them accountable, right? Because I think there has to be an accountability process for some of the leadership in the trade union movement who've aligned themselves with the boss's interests against the interests of their workers. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I, I just wonder from both of you like whether that feels overly utopian in the kinds of timelines that we're talking about, right? Where we also, like, is it complementary with the political goals that we have laid out for ourselves, take back the Senate, you know, keep the House, win the White House, or like it, it, it doesn't compete with all that organizing, or is there a way of doing it that's complementary, that this is part of what gets people excited to vote um, in this incredibly short timeline that we have? What do you think? Is this something we do after we win, or is this how we win? Before, during, and after, <laughs> we need a lot of strikes. Um, I keep saying that. So um, I think that vision was uh, beautiful, right? And by the way, the postal workers, like, again, back to that opening slide from Raj's opening part of the day, like, I was so struck by that beautiful thing from Kansas, not the ugly picture of murder and attacking and 
genocide against the indigenous people, but the one of the Works Progress Administration where they're like looking up glowingly at the mail being delivered as this incredible, um, incredible thing, which it really was, right, to have your mail delivered. And now we have like evil Jeff Bezos hiring whatever. Um, so I, I think, no, I, I mean, I really think it's important in just the same way that you said that we shouldn't surrender our language. In fact, Mary also said, don't cater our language to the opposition, right? I'm all about that, too. Like, don't do it. Don't change it. Um, I think it is good. And I think we have to lead where the base of support is. I think it's there. Like, you were talking about it in your polling numbers. Like, the base, the base of support is there. Look, the truth is, the vast majority of people uh, in this country, it's probably true in Canada, too. I'm just going to take it back for a minute to here. But the vast majority of people, my Canadian colleagues, the vast majority of people um, in this country, if you ask them questions, right, in terms of polling data, like, if you ask them questions um, about what they want, uh, they, they, they want a tax rate that's, like, higher than Sweden, and they want everything Sweden has, just for starters, right? So there's, <laughs> there's a huge dislocation between, like, what people in this country really want and then how confused they get by the... In, in the immediate, the climate denialists and the, the union busters, um, the same thing that happens in a trade union campaign, right? When the union busters come in and say, oh, well, you're going to lose everything. The union's going to, you're going to go to union jail. You're going to, like, all these crazy things they say to people all the time. So you're going to lose your money. You're going to go backwards. So um, I think it is part of the vision of how we win. That's why I'm urging that we get our semantics lined up and better and tighter, and we get really clear and reflective and, like, own the idea. Even Sanders, I think, I heard him speaking recently, and he did not nail the question of the just transition or how to talk about the jobs of the future. But when you say that, there's a re there is a new, um, the latest Bureau of Labor Statistics um, numbers that came out talking about the 10 fastest growing jobs in the economy. Um, and the vast majority of them are located in the healthcare sector, right? And we've known that for a while, but these are jobs that are not going to go anywhere. They're located, whether you're in Canada or here, um, and it's extraordinary. So there's like, on the, on the sort of existing, without the Green New Deal that we're going to win, there's like solar voltaic people are going to be on the increase, and wind turbine people will be on the increase. And then it's like home health care, personal, occupational therapists, physical therapy assistants, uh, nurse practitioners, speech-language pathologists. And then there's like, you know, two other things in there shoved in there. But it's like the vast majority of jobs of the future um, that are growing in this country are in a sector that already believe in the Green New Deal. So the question is, how do we involve them? How do we bring them in? But it's also true that we talked a lot today about how we are going to need to have a more robust public sector, right? And I always saw the unionization of the public sector, like a second wave of unionization that happened in the US. Wave one was 30s, 40s, um, 50s in the so-called private sector. I don't even believe there is a private and public sector, but to detail. But in the private, so-called private sector in the 30s, 40s, and 50s um, was the huge first wave of unionization. The second wave, what I call like the second major wave, was in the public sector. Um, and that was really in the late 60s, 70s, 60s and 70s. And that was a transformation of jobs that were mostly held by women and women of color and people of color, which is the public sector historically, um, that radically improved jobs through unionization in the public sector. So we're going to need a more robust public sector. And what I'm asking people who are involved in dreaming up the Green New Deal to do is be way more 
overt and aggressive in defense of the public sector right now, like as it exists. Because from Scott Walker in Wisconsin to Michigan, like we, we are literally like in the last few years, the public sector is under profound attack. Um, and public sector unionization is under profound attack. So um, if we want to be sure that going forward we have a Green New Deal with a robust public sector, um, I feel like I have to start saying the word taxes and power again soon, but taxes and power, let's come back to taxes and power. Um, I think Nancy said taxes, taxes, taxes. I want to come back to them because we're not having a public sector or a Green New Deal without taxing the crap out of corporations and the rich again, which we're doing in California now. But so I think it is a good language for us in terms of how we do this. But I wanted to come back to something that you were raising because I think it's, it's a question I want to ask you. You started in on the role of arts mm -hmm. and like how does culture and the cultural work fit into the movement? And I wanted to ask your thoughts about where does culture uh, fit into the movement that we're building for the Green New Deal? Do you have thoughts on where the culture fits into the work? It's <laughs> a big question. Yeah. Um, so. Back in early August, uh, I traveled uh, to a community that has a 500-year-old uh, constitution. It wasn't a community in Europe, it wasn't the United States, and it damn sure wasn't Canada. It was called Ganawage. It's a Mohawk nation uh, across the St. Lawrence River from Montreal. And it's one of the communities and one of the nations that is part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, uh, a confederacy that has a great law, a constitution, a story that it tells about itself, about where it came from and where it's going, that has existed for over 500 years. That's a long time. There's also a whole heck of a lot of bad stuff that happened in those 500 years. These are people who survived smallpox, who survived plagues, who fought invading armies of Dutch, British, French, Americans, and continue to have their constitution, their great law. Their kids were taken away from them and put into boarding and residential schools, literally ripped from their mother's arms. They still have their great law. They still understand who they are as a people. They still tell that story. And they still tell it in the language that was beaten from their children. And so I think one of the most powerful things, not just about indigenous peoples, but about all peoples, is our ability to have those stories, to make cultures. Cultures are really just manuals for how we're going to do all these things together as people. And if the Haudenosaunee can maintain their great law against an apocalypse, against genocide, I do believe that culture and the stories that we tell, tell about ourselves and the words that we use to tell those stories are some of the most powerful things that we have to steal our souls against the climate abyss that we face now. And so while, you know, strategy, policy, politics, elections, all these things matter, I think that there are, are elements of this, you know, that aren't maybe so new. It's the wind. It's the sun. It's the indigenous. It's the people. It's all these things that have been here 
for eons, since, since forever. And I think we just need to recognize the power that is in them. And with that, I think we can build something that is really green and really new. And so I think that's the power of culture. I have, the, I have the strategically located geographic position of seeing the people <laughs> who are going to pull us off the stage in about 10 minutes. So um, I think that we, I, 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 I don't, you want to keep rolling there with your, um, your vision of, uh, your vision it's of how not it's going it to go down? It, it was this guy named the Peacemaker. It was his yeah, vision. Good. Mm -hmm. No, it's good. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty cool vision. He had a brother, too, named Hiawatha. Very helpful. <laughs> so what's your, uh, what's your vision of what the future holds. My vision? Yeah. Oh. Um, our, our closing comments, basically. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I got a lot, a lot of my vision from Naomi's books, so. I <laughs> 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 kind of want to hear from her. Ooh. Um, well, that was really powerful. Um, I think we, we need stories, you know? And, and, and as Julian said, they don't all have to be new. <laughs> um, but we, I think that, that, that this time of overlapping, intersecting crisis, crises, um, at its core represents the collapse of the stories at the heart of settler colonialism um, that imagined the quote-unquote new world as basically spare Europe's, right? I mean, um, new France, you know, new England, um, new Spain, um, new Amsterdam, like these are some of the least imaginative people in the world. <laughs> um, and, um, but quite literally, that Europe was hitting up against ecological limits and was, and was just like, shit, like we've, we've cut all of our trees, we've run out of fish, you know, we have an extinction crisis. And it was like, whoa, cornucopia. And it's so amazing, you know, to read like the, the you know, the, the, um, the doctrine like that created the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, it was just sort of like, they, like, they had only seen a fraction of Canada at that point, but they were just like, this was wilderness beyond imaginings, and they were just like, we own it, we own it up to wherever we can't imagine and also under it, you know? Um, and it was just uh, this, I mean, this huge natural grab, right? And then all of the racism that was required to justify it. But I think in terms of understanding the way that sort of heads are exploding right now in the face of the climate crisis, you know, and Laura Ingram's stabbing stakes with plastic straws and light bulbs, like what is going on, is like the natural world is telling us actually there are limits. You have to live within limits. Um, the whole story of dominance of, of, of nature and of the people who were cast as closest to it, um, African people, indigenous people, and women, right? Um, and the war that was waged, um, that, that all of those stories are, are now crumbling, and it's really, really scary for the people most invested in those stories because it's like the earth is saying, you were never the boss, you were never in charge, right? And this is like anybody who has, you know, had any 
experience of a wildfire, of a category anything, hurricane, let alone what just happened to the Bahamas. I mean, it puts us in our place. And you can either just feel terrible about that, like, oh my God, what an awful demotion. I thought I was the boss of nature, you know, and get really, really mad and have a massive temper tantrum about it. Or we can actually have some humility and listen to some of the, the people and the stories that have been telling us that we are in relation with all of life, and that's incredibly beautiful, right? Um, and and we, need, we need those old stories mixed with new stories. We are in, we have been living this extractive, nightmare, dream for, for, for a few, about the idea that you can take and take and take from both land and people without limit um, and escape all consequences, just throw away and lock up and, and, and move the hell on, right? And that story is crashing everywhere, right? And this is what Greg Grandin's book is about, like from the frontier to the wall, right? Um, but what we desperately need to do now is tell news stories, right? Um, that, and, and so, you know, I talk a bit about the moving from the gig and dig economy, which is like, I think unifies the extractive mindset as applied to workers and the earth, right? Because the gig economy is just all about these companies escaping all relationships of reciprocities and saying we don't even have workers, right? But we're not even going to abuse workers because we don't even have them, you know? You deny that your workforce even exists, right, if you're Uber and Lyft, which is what they're in the middle of trying to do in California. Um, so moving from that gig and dig culture to, I think, a world that's based on other values, that are based on care and repair. And I think repair is a really powerful word, because that's, I think, at the heart of so much of what we're talking about here, is repairing our relationships with one another. Um, and there's been a hell of a lot of damage, and we don't get to this happy, hopeful place unless we're willing to do a ton of hard work. Um, we need to repair some of the messes we've made and clean up some of the messes, all of the messes we've made, and there's actually a lot of work that can be created in, in that work of repair. Um, and we also need to start repairing our stuff and not throwing it away. And one of the, th one of the things that we are one of the, dodging a little bit, I think, in a lot of the ways we talk about the, new, the, the Green New Deal, is that actually there are limits to consumption. And it isn't just about substituting, you know, green for, you know, dirty products. And um, we actually just need to consume a lot less um, and find <laughs> happiness and community and value um, in activities other than shopping, right? And so, like, we can't totally run away from the, like, you know, they're coming for your hamburgers, like maybe kinda, you know? Like there might be some things that we actually have to give up or have some less of, you know? Um, and I'm just, you know, throwing that out as an example of like it can't just be like we're not, not gonna, that we're not gonna um, 
be honest that there are some things that we're going to give up, and we also have to be honest and excited about some of the things that we're going to gain. And I just want to leave you with one last thought, which is societies can change really, really quickly. Look at Puerto Rico. Um, and Woo! look at Hong Kong. One thing you know, all of us who've been around for a while know is that you can never predict that moment when suddenly people have just had enough. Um, you know, we can talk about organizing and strategy, and we have to do all of that, but something, there is something else that happens, which is sometimes the unexpected happens, and, and, and societies that have been written off as apathetic are suddenly in the streets calling for the resignation, you know, of everybody and saying, que se vayan todos, and banging pots and pans, and we've all seen glimpses of these moments of effervescence, but we've also seen what it looks like when we aren't ready for power. And so I just want to say that I feel like for the first time in my political life, um, I'm actually part of a movement where we're taking seriously our responsibility to be ready for that moment. Um, and it's, it's a joy and a privilege to be in struggle with all of you. Let's get ready for fire. Yeah.